This is an ABC podcast. A creepy character created by artificial intelligence has experts baffled. This week on Download This Show, how an online tool has crafted a mysterious horror story. A Taylor Swift concert has triggered an antitrust lawsuit into the largest online ticketing agency in the world. And Twitter verification is back, but not quite as we know it. What is head twit Elon Musk up to this week? Plus, why Pong, the 50-year-old game, yes, it has been that long, is more relevant than ever. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. Ray Johnston here, replacing the irreplaceable Mark Fennell for this week's episode. And it is a pleasure to welcome our guests for today. We have Josh Taylor, reporter at The Guardian. Welcome. Great to be with you. And Natasha Gillizzo, product manager at Flux Finance. Hello. Hello. Now, out there in the internet, there is a creepy woman called Loeb. She was created by artificial intelligence and she keeps popping up everywhere. This is not the latest Stephen King plot, although it could be. It does feel like one of those creepypasta horror stories that we read about on Reddit. But Tash, what is the lowdown here? What is Loeb? So... Yeah, Loeb is, um, if you haven't seen her, she's kind of got this like dark gothic kind of look, um, but she's actually an AI generated image. She's not a real person um, and she was created or discovered or stumbled upon, I don't know what the best verb is, by an artist called Steph who lives in Uppsala, Sweden. She was playing around on an AI generation tool. I don't know if you've seen them, Ray, but there's kind of a bunch of different tools where you can input um, some kind of stimulus and it will spit out an image. So you could be like, Pingu visits Ko-PP and then you get something. <laughs> um, she put in like a, some prompt and then a business logo came out and then she was playing around with negative prompts, which is when you ask the program to be like, okay, what's the opposite of this input? Um, and that's how she stumbled upon Loeb, who is very creepy looking. Um, it's almost like a, she's a bit gory. I'd almost say like like with your Stephen King suggestion, a bit like in the horror genre. Josh, this story, it, it kind of does raise questions again. We, we see these popping up every now and again about the consciousness of AI because Loeb is quite persistent, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, the, um, Steph, who was, was putting this together, she, I think she said she had something around like 900 images of Loeb that she'd been able to, to uh, output from this AI generator. Um, it is one of those interesting things. I still think that humans have this tendency to sort of... Um, I don't know if anthropomorphize is the right word, but basically see the human in what is not human. And I think although AI is coming along a long way, I think, um, you know, I don't know whether we can say that this is sort of AI getting out of control or just, you know, something that creepy that the, the machine has prompted back up to us. Um, it is it is quite creepy. I think um, all the photos, you know, if you've seen them online, and, and we've only seen some of them, um, Steph the artist has been quite insistent that she's not putting out some of the, incredibly gory ones um they're all pretty creepy but yeah um i I think yeah it's one of those things that it's been interesting watching 
because it's only been sort of the last year that we've we've had access to these sorts of um, AI tools where you can put an input in and get an image or some text and things like that available to the general public more or less. And we're still sort of learning about how it's going to work and what it's going to do. And, and the, a lot of the companies and, and organizations that have put these out have put controls over what can what can be generated to sort of protect, you know, people, you're not going to create revenge porn, you're not going to um, create something that's, you know, horrible images and stuff like that. But there is still the, that little bit of something at the edge. You know, she was using what what they call like negative prompts. So basically, you you um, you put in a prompt that is basically the opposite of what you're looking for, and that's how she found it. So it's kind of teetering at the edges of the of what AI was trying to build out of that out of her prompts. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, there's generally two types. So you've got applied artificial intelligence, which is what this program kind of is. It's just doing a single thing, you know, faster, better, producing more images than we could do as humans ourselves. It would take us a really long time to be able to create things like this. And then you've got general AI, which is something that people talk about as being something that will happen in the future where the AI can learn from its previous tasks that it's been given and kind of genuinely create some self-awareness around itself. Is it possible, do you think, Tash, for AI to have self-awareness? How can we tell if it does? I mean, I I think it probably is possible. Like, I do think it probably is possible, um, but... That's prob- that's not the view of a lot of, um, I guess, experts in AI. They, they, they argue that it's not. But I think it, it depends how you define self-awareness, which is obviously like a whole discussion about like what is consciousness. And I don't think we'll get into that here. But even asking, like, for example, one of the programs that another artist was using, um, uh, actually a journalist at the ABC was using to find out more about Loeb, which is like a communication back and forth AI um program um asks the question like you know what can we learn about the fact of your existence and 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 Loeb essentially is answering being like look there's certain things with AI that you don't fully understand and it's like it's hard to know where that comes from like what what how is it generating that response um and I think the fact like the fact that Loeb looks creepy isn't the creepy thing about AI. There's probably more banal things that are uh, scarier when it comes to the applications of AI. It's the fact that it was like a mutation that wasn't expected by the program. So it's something that's happening not by how the program has built it, but it's something that happened outside the expectation of what the inputs were at the start. Like when you talk about that pattern recognition, it's like, okay, we're going to be recognizing patterns or spitting out images. This is when something takes a step beyond that into a different territory where it's like, it was never meant to do that, or we didn't expect that. And that, I think, I think that's different to the question around self-awareness, but it is, it speaks to like leaps happening outside the original intention of the way that programs are built that use certain forms of AI. This isn't the first time that we've seen an AI claim to be sentient. There was famously earlier this year, actually, a Google engineer who was gently let go from his job after believing that a chatbot became sentient. Josh, how do we know that they're not? 
Yeah, I think that's going to be the interesting thing that we <clears throat> try to determine over the next few years. So it's, it's one of those things where I still think that AI is at that stage where it's basically building on the sum of human knowledge and everything that we're inputting into these things now and making all these connections that are very quick and, and very, very um, learning a lot very, very quickly. And it's starting to scare us because it is outputting stuff that to us sounds like um, you know, human speech, human discussion sounds like it, it is functionally aware. But I guess ultimately, you know, that that's part of the 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 genius of where it's getting to now, where it's just um, it it may trick us into thinking that it's real, but um, it is ba still basically just building on humanity already, like the stuff that we're putting into it in the first place. And and if it doesn't have that, then is it human or not? But I guess then we get into a whole discussion about. Um, you know, how, how how are humans made? Like, we're, we're the sum of human knowledge as well, so... We're getting deep. We're getting deep here. <laughs> what a wonderful future we're living in already. Tash, you mentioned earlier that there are some scarier things than just horror images that are being generated by AI. What do we need to be wary of? I mean, my personal opinion is that I think there could be questions around, like, where to apply AI and where not. I think, like areas where it's like about increasing efficiency or replacing boring tasks that seems less controversial to me than like AI which already exists that shapes people's tastes so whether it's like their dating preferences or music that they listen to or I think AI takes people down these roads and starts to narrow them towards an optimum um, which means it reduces a person's realm of consideration, whether that's dating options, whether that's music they might like, whether that's things to read online, whether that's news. Um, and I think that takes away some of their choice in the matter, um, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, whether it's kind of, um, whether it's a hinge or whether it's Instagram or whether it's, um, you know, YouTube, a lot of these uh, programs already are doing that. Um, but I think, that to me is more concerning than like AI at an Amazon factory, much as that does have downside problems. Um, that seems more just less icky somehow. Josh, is Loeb the scariest thing you've seen AI do or is there something worse out there? I think it the, the most frightening parts of AI is where it will intersect with public policy and I guess things like law enforcement when you when you have um, if you're you're profiling people who might be suspected of committing crimes like you'll probably input it with data from humans who will obviously have a, a tendency for towards racial bias and things like that um, just just basically any anything where it interacts you know we've got a royal commission into robo debt at the moment because that was basically it's not ai but it was automating um the the um notice of of debts um for for people who didn't actually have debts with centrelink so um just just things like that where um the input data is bad the humans who designed it were not doing a very good job and it had disastrous results for people i think that's probably the thing that scares me the most about all of that one of my favorite quotes about ai comes from kate crawford artificial intelligence researcher she says that artificial intelligence is neither artificial or intelligent it's just made by people using data from the past to make decisions about the future. And I think that's something that I always keep in mind when I see things like this. We need to be aware of you know, who is creating the AI that we're using and what influence will it have on society as we go forward. 
download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And it's another week. So there is another development in the most rapidly evolving social media platform we have right now. It is Twitter. There have been a lot of changes at Twitter in the last few weeks least of which is not the verification system. It's gone through some twists and turns. Tash, what's the journey been like so far? For sure. Okay, so um, Elon Musk is like the new owner of Twitter, one of like the biggest social media platforms in the world. And the initial product change or change at a product level um, was the introduction of this $7.99 a month subscription to have a blue check mark. So in the previous version, um, to get that, you had to prove... There was certain quote like criteria that allowed you to be verified, which uh, some credibility essentially. Um, this introduction would mean that anyone willing to pay would be able to have a blue check mark, essentially throwing the check mark system, like rendering it redundant almost overnight. Um, now, as of four days ago, I think um, Musk has again tweeted um, as is the way of doing these product announcements. Um, a new, a new thing called Verified, which sounds a lot like the old thing to me, but anyway, um, which would basically be a gold check for companies, a blue check for individuals, a grey check for government agencies, and all accounts would have to be manually authenticated. No word on whether this seven ninety nine a month thing is going to stick around or not, um, but bringing back in the idea that you can't just be a random or be a dummy account and get get the blue or grey or gold check. So that's where it's at. When that's going to happen, I'm not sure. Josh, why has this seemingly backflip happened? I think he just butted heads with reality. You know, we saw uh, when he brought on the blue ticks that you could pay for, a flood of um, people impersonating brands. We saw brands saying that they were, you know, pharmaceutical companies saying they were offering uh, free insulin and had, you know, their, their stock price go down. Um, you had, there was a lot of like weird Nintendo postings going on. Um, there was, you know, we had, we had politicians being impersonated and it was not a very good, uh, time. And at a time where advertisers were already nervous with Twitter, uh, it just caused a lot of them to pause their advertising and pull out. And that's obviously a huge issue for Elon Musk as he tries to make Twitter now profitable. And, you know, we've, we've seen most recently Apple is now, um, removing its advertising as well because they're a bit worried about it so it's not it's not going well and so i think that's why you know common sense well we'll see how it actually falls out in in a week or so but common sense may have prevailed in here if, if we're actually going to make sure that people are who they say they are on these platforms and not everyone can just get a blue tick just because they want to pay eight dollars a month tash do you think this new plan is better is it more useful to have people actually verified with a verification system yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, that kind of gave, I, I think that like allowed for a lot of the initial star power Twitter of Twitter to flourish. It kind of, it also gave like an incentive to people who, who were good at Twitter, whether because they were funny or they were journalists or they were like something else to, to be good at Twitter. I think there's something to um, differentiating, I suppose, between um, yeah, like more, I don't want to say more legitimate accounts because you might not have many followers and be tweeting legitimate things, but I, I think it seems reasonable. Like it's not earth shattering because it kind of already existed, but it's like, I guess it seems reasonable, but yeah. 
Things happen at Twitter so fast at the moment. Can I just get a bit of a vibe check here, Josh? What's going down there at the moment? <laughs> well, basically, he's he's cut about maybe two thirds of the entire staff, and now um, you know we all thought the site was going to potentially go offline in the in the last couple of weeks, but it seems to have stayed online at the moment. Um, every time I think that things are starting to get a bit quieter, but they they start to pop up again. The mo the latest thing is now that. Um, Apple's pulled all its advertising and uh, according to Elon Musk, uh, he's saying that they're potentially looking at removing uh, Twitter from the App Store and that would have huge implications because I think probably you probably could say the majority of people who use Twitter use it from either from their mobile phone and, and accessing either the Google Play app or the, the Apple App Store app. Now, this won't affect people who have already downloaded the app and have it installed, but if Apple did do this, it means that new people couldn't uh, download the app and sign up to it through the, through the App Store, and it would mean uh, that it it would just the updates wouldn't go through for the the existing user base. So it, at some point, it would become a security issue more than anything else, and you wouldn't get the new features and everything like that. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston filling in for Mark Fennell, and I am joined by Josh Taylor, reporter at The Guardian, and Natasha Gillizzo, product manager at Flux Finance. And Ticketmaster is under fire from Swifties. That's a Taylor Swift fans, but also the US Senate. So, Tash, what has happened here? Can you fill me in? Yeah, okay, so Taylor Swift, who's like obviously a bit of a pop star extraordinaire, she hasn't done a concert in five years, so um, Swifties, like this is like their big moment. Um, she was selling tickets to her... Uh, upcoming concert or like global tour they're notoriously pretty expensive like they're, they're but you know that's fine it's going to be like a massive show um but essentially the demand was so crazy for these tickets Ticketmaster, which is the platform that like sells the tickets said demand was big enough to fill 900 stadiums which is just like i i don't know how many people that was but Anyway, Ticketmaster were a bit like, I don't like your tone, people, and they, like, blocked people from being able to buy tickets. Um, some people were really angry with that. Um, but, yeah, it was just a bit of, like, an online stampede. Some people think Ticketmaster didn't respond in the best possible way and should have been able to, I suppose, expect and anticipate that level of demand and handle it in a better way. Um, and then there's also this other side issue around people immediately, you know, buying Taylor Swift tickets and then reselling them for, like, just crazy prices, like $20,000. Like I, I don't even, yeah, it's hard to really like even get your head around. But um, yeah, it was just a bit of a shambles. Um, and so that's the sort of like big picture overview of what's going on. Um, new Taylor Swift album, very good, by the way. <laughs> Josh, I think there's been complaints about Ticketmaster as long as I've been aware of Ticketmaster, especially with seemingly unfair fees and charges but what is the actual process of buying a ticket on the platform like these days i mean i uh, to be honest i haven't bought anything through Ticketmaster in quite a while but it, i think it's uh, one of those things where you you get this prompt and say you're ex person in the queue you've got to wait you've got to wait and then you're just sort of waiting for it to pop up i think it's kind of interesting that um a lot of the issues that have seemed to have come out of this stuff we don't really have as much in australia anymore because i think we've I think the, the the ticket company, we have a little bit more competition, I think, with the companies here where although the biggest artists will obviously go with the big promoters who then favour a company like Ticketek or Ticketmaster, um, 
there is a, l- a little bit more competition in terms of the different companies you can buy from. And I think the other thing, so I don't know, like if you bought a ticket for anything recently where they won't actually release the ticket to you until, you know, a couple of weeks before the event. So that's designed to, to limit the, I guess, the the resell of that. Um, and then you've got companies in Australia like um, Humanitix, which is which is a new competitor. You've also got Tixel, which is a really good um, sort of resell company that you can use that won't actually let you increase the price by you know the the sort of size that we're seeing for the Taylor Swift tickets. So you won't be able to sell it at outrageous prices. So it really cuts down on the ticket scalpers, and it it seems to be. Uh, they, the US needs to sort of get a grip on trying to deal with ticket scalpers, I think, because that's the big issue there. Yeah. So this whole chaotic situation with the Taylor Swift tickets has resulted in a US Senate antitrust panel going ahead looking into Ticketmaster. Tash, do you think the accusations of a monopoly here are fair? Well, I mean, I I think there's only a couple players for selling tickets like this. So I, I, I kind of almost th- see the Taylor Swift debacle thing as almost like separate from the question of like, is Ticketmaster a monopoly or, or not? Um, there was a acquisition of like a, a, I suppose, like a small competitor called Live Nation. Um, so Ticketmaster now own that. So I guess that's less competition. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, any kind of antitrust hearing or like inquiry is just going to ask the question and that would mean looking and assessing like who else is out there in the market how are they operating how does Ticketmaster act in relation to them so it's worth asking the question because it might sound like a small thing but you know um it's still it's still I guess important to ask the question even though so much focus has been on big tech when it comes to antitrust questions um this is still like you know another area of the market that we can look at and be like what's going on Josh, what do you think needs to happen to make ticket sales online more fair? I think they just have to, I think firstly sort of examining the relationship between the, I guess the promoters and the, and the ticket sellers and things like that. <clears throat> I, I think that um, some of the things we've seen in terms of um, making sure that, that people who have signed up and verified themselves as authentic fans get tickets. If that, if that process was actually working properly, that would be a potential way to limit this sort of like, I guess the, the scalping that we're sort of seeing. And, and I think that is probably a right thing. I think maybe just sort of rules around um, which promoters people can use and which ticket companies people can use and, and sell to and, and just sort of splitting it up a bit, giving a bit, bit more competition and, and making that tension there. So these companies do actually have to compete with each other and um, it means that they actually don't rip off customers and, and make it much better. I guess that's like that's what the antitrust uh, hearing might actually get to the bottom of, hopefully. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and the classic video game Pong is celebrating its 50th year and it has shaped the way forward, not just for video games, but for technology in general. Tash, take me back to the beginning. How and why was Pong made? It's so crazy to think about just, you know, how simple games used to be and like the level of complexity <laughs> that exists now. But um, yeah, it's almost like uh, these digital games are now like the equivalent of being like kids used to just play with like a stick and a ball and that's like <laughs> what would entertain them. But anyway, so this was a like a video game and it's like uh, it's inspired by table tennis and it's literally there's like a rectangle called a paddle paddle and you had to like move the rectangle and like hit the ball back like and forth. Like sticks and balls. Yeah, like sticks and balls, but digital <laughs> form. Exactly. Josh, why was Pong so successful back in the day? 
I think just because there was nothing else of its kind out there, and and um, it was one of those things that you could put into a machine in in a you know in a corner store or a pub or something like that, and and people were keen to play it, and it, you know it was just a whole new thing for people to play, and I think that's probably why uh, why it was so popular at the time. Its longevity is probably a little bit harder to understand. I think it's just the simplicity of it, um, more or less, because. It doesn't take. There's not that. Um, I guess that skill gap. So the the thing that you find with video games today is that um, unless you're playing on a super easy mode or something like that, <laughs> um, there is a bit of a learning curve. So you will you're like particularly you know if you look at some uh, like Elden Ring. That apparently I haven't played that, but I understand that the the learning curve for that is incredibly high, and you're going to be throwing yeah. your controller at the screen many many times before you actually <laughs> get through it. Um, and I, you know people do like that, and people like that like that challenge. But I think. At the same time, if you just want to have a bit of a relaxing play of a game, like Pong is a very easy one to go to. Tash, why do you think that Pong has endured to today? Why is it still around and being used? I think it's just kind of the ultimate, like, if you're bored, what's, like, a really simple thing that you can do <laughs> without, like, you know, like, getting too invested um, and... Yeah, it's it's simple, it's quick, it's it's a bit like, you know, more in like mind-numbing category as opposed to like something that you need to be too inspired to play. I love that it would have been so challenging at the time to get a grasp of how you do control something in a digital space. And now we're just so used to doing it that it's second nature. It's not even difficult anymore. Josh, Pong is being used in some pretty new and unexpected ways, though, for such a simple, simple game. Can you tell me about the dish brain experiment? Yeah, so we have an Australian startup uh, that used dish brain, which is basically lab-grown brain cells that can essentially play Pong themselves. And, and it's just, you know, I guess the next... It's just showing you how simple it is. And, and I mean, the, the technology that they've used to create it is quite complex. But ultimately, if you, you only need a few, few brain cells to, to make it happen, then, you know, it shows why it's a classic. So dish brain is literally brain cells in a dish and they can play Pong. Yeah, there's about 800,000 uh, cells that are, have been you know, created uh, in this uh, cortical labs, at, um, which is sort of a combination of Monash and University of Melbourne and the University of College London, that um, it's human cells derived from sen cells and mouse cells derived from embryonic cells. And they've, you know, put them into a into a dish with a multi-electrode array that, you know, stimulates the cells and, and gave the cells feedback when the paddle is hitting the ball. And then it learned how to play. Maybe we could give the dish a go at running Twitter, see what else it would come up with. <laughs> um, it's interesting how, I guess, it's similar to what we were saying before, that we want something simple and quick, that we're seeing a little bit of a revival of that. And, you know, we saw it in mobile games when a lot of, like, mobile games become popular now. Um, you know, people just want something simple that they can pick up and put down. Um, I guess Wordle is probably, like, it, Wordle does require probably a bit more than 800,000 <laughs> brain cells, but, but it is one of those things that you can just pick up do for a little bit and put down. And I think there's like a lot of craving for that just short, quick, like attention grabbing thing. Yeah, I think when we're in a space where we're looking at, you know, 800 hour campaign multiplayer games that are super immersive and look like movies and require a lot of time and commitment, 
as adults, <laughs> I think we're looking at that and going, look, do I really have time for this? Is this really what I can do? And I've seen a real push towards more cosy games, more you know, wholesome kind of experiences that you can just pick up and, you know, water a houseplant that can't die because it's digital and, and then move on with your day with a bit of happiness in your step. And I guess to bring the topic back around to Twitter as well, we, we are in a um, state of play online now where everything is trying to grab our attention for the most amount of time. And for something that just takes up a few minutes of your day, that's a welcome relief from all of that, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everything seems to require a lot more time investment because we have to figure out what is going on with half of these places. Everything seems to be changing so rapidly online these days and keeping up with it is an absolute nightmare. So I'm really, really grateful that I can sit down with you both and pick your brains and see what we're up to at the moment. So thank you both for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Hopefully a bit more than 800,000 brain cells in that one. But <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you, Tash. Thank you for having me, Ray. Now, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.